Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my privilege to have as my guests Dr. Christina Edmondson and Chad Brennan. They're co-authors of the InterVarsity Press book, Faithful Anti-Racism, Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change. They take us on a deep dive into the critical issues of racial justice and injustice, especially as we see it in church and in society, as well as what it looks like for followers of Jesus to be faithful anti-racists. And we'll get into definitions and how to think about these things. You're going to find this conversation really helpful, regardless of what part of the United States you live in, whether you're in an urban area or a rural area, whether you are a a white person or a person of color. We approach this topic from a variety of angles and Christina and Chad are incredibly well-versed and helpful. Uh, Before we jump into the conversation, uh, let me remind uh, all of you, if, if, uh, if you're interested in centering prayer or contemplative spiritual practices, I have a variety of resources that are available to uh, to you uh, free of charge. You can check out my website, brianrussellphd.com for links to all of my resources. If you're interested in particular in centering prayer and getting a practice started and getting updates from me about free Centering Prayer workshop gatherings, you can sign up at centeringprayerbook.com. Now let's jump into my conversation with Chad and Christina about their book, Faithful Anti-Racism. Welcome, Chad and Christina, to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. It's so great to have you on the show today. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Well, thank you again. And uh, and just to j- jump in, um, can you both share some key moments in your life and spiritual journey? And I guess we should say it briefly um, that led to your uh, public work on racial justice in general, and then the writing of um, faithful anti-racism in particular? Christina, you want to go? <laughs> I was like, go, Chad, go. Um, I will start. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I mean, I, I talk about this in, in the book, Chad and I both do in the introductory introduction, talk a little bit about our own stories, our own journey to this book, our journey to this topic. And um, yeah, I was raised in um, what would be considered, uh, you know, predominantly black, black city, um, and primarily educated in predominantly African-American schools, even up through college, went to historically black college and university. And my parents worked very hard to, I think in many ways, try to shield me from, uh, racism and bigotry. Um, but I don't think even the most well-meaning and intentional black parents can do that. Uh, and so, uh, on a personal level, despite uh, what felt like the homogeneity of my cultural context, I still experienced expressions of racism. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I, I believe I had uh, my love, my loving family in church and communities, kind of interpretive cool tools and navigation, navigational tools, so to speak, um, as a kid and a young adult. Uh, in college, I studied uh, eventually. <laughs> I always say eventually because you know, college students, you start off in one place and then you know. You end up somewhere else. But um, I eventually ended up studying uh, sociology with an emphasis in race, class, and gender. So I I find people fascinating. I just think that we are interesting and, and 
complex and complicated. Um, and, uh, and then after that, I went into two different graduate programs over a series of several years. One was a master's of science in family systems. Again, people are interesting and are interested in their families. Um, and, and, then, and then eventually a PhD in counseling psychology where I did a lot of work around trauma, uh, not only um, sexual trauma, um, military trauma, et cetera, but also cultural trauma. And, uh, and so the work that I did as a clinician, so the therapy room, the classroom, and then even in um, around kind of boardroom tables, uh, kind of put all those things into conversation. And um, the story of race, the reality of race is always, is, I think it's always in the room, and particularly in the American context, the United States context. And, um, and so I think it was something that we always had to approach to deal with, to think about, to think through. And um, ultimately it became more central overtly in my work um, and then had to develop skills to talk about it in conversation with my faith tradition and other people that are Christian, their faith traditions, um, in order to be able, I think, to do, to do my job, job well some days. And so that background, I think, led up to my part in the book. Thank you. Yeah, for my story, I, as I share in the book, I, I really started off kind of ignoring issues of race in many ways. Um, when I was growing up, I grew up in a strong Christian family, but we didn't really talk about um, you know, issues like race very much. And um, I would describe now, looking back in hindsight, my views as a combination of colorblindness, kind of trying to ignore a person's race, and offense avoidance, trying to not say the wrong thing to anyone. And then kind of indifference, honestly, it just, it wasn't on my radar. I wasn't really motivated. Um, there's been thousands of things as you would probably imagine between then and now that have me in this space. But a couple of things are really big. One was when I was a junior in college um, through some really neat, I think very providential circumstances. I ended up on a short-term trip over spring break. And it, one of the focuses I wasn't even aware of when I went on the trip was the idea of racial justice and racial dynamics in the United States. And the leaders, you know, talked about their experiences of racism in the United States and systemic injustice. And, and I remember still just being like, wow, you know, racism still exists. You know, like that was kind of a revelation for me, you know, in the, in the 90s. And, and so that was kind of a bit of a beginning and then a lot of different experiences. My wife and I lived in New York City for five years. That's really where I began to have my eyes open to one, the need for Christians of all races to engage on this topic, how little I knew about it. And then also just the pain, the division, um, the dysfunction that is in um, U.S. Christianity around this topic. And so I was a part of a large um, evangelistic ministry, and it was just it just always kind of felt, you know, like it wasn't handled correctly or biblically, and it was just kind of navigating all that. It just seemed so strange. Um, another thing that was really helpful and informative to me is I earning a master's of theological studies through Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, I really appreciated the fact that they, um, in our coursework, really emphasized the Bible's emphasis on justice. Mm -hmm. I'm thankful for that theological frame. Um, it was things that I was kind of exploring. Um, I did that through a 10-year process as I was in the middle of doing ministry. But it was just super informative to me to have professors that were like naming those things and the people that I could respect. I knew, knew the Bible very well. And I, it just was not something that I experienced. I honestly cannot think of one sermon, um, you know, until what I was in my 20s that was ever focused on like justice, let alone systemic injustice. And so, um, so that was, that was super helpful. So um, long story short, it's been about 
16, 17 years now or so that I've been working in this space. And so there's been lots of really cool confirmations, challenges um, all along the way, but um, that's been my story. And and thank you. And again, the Chad and Christina's book is called Faithful Anti-Racism, Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change, out now from InterVarsity uh, Press. And before we get into the actual deep content and talk about racism and anti-racism, uh, I, I think it's just interesting. I love having authors on and I have uh, two co-authors. And can you both just share just briefly what it was like to write a book with another person. Uh, if you have any tips for people that are thinking about co-authoring and again, without, again, as we joked before, that's without throwing pies at each other in the process here, of course, but because uh, of course it was a wonderful process all the way through. <laughs> any tips yeah, I, for authors? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, I mean, I think so. Um, I think there are certain personality types that probably lend themselves to co-authorship more than others. Let's just, let's just say that. <laughs> And, um, and, you know, I, I think that, uh, so yeah, not only did we write this book together, we wrote it during a fair amount of transition and COVID and, <laughs> and life. It's just a lot going on. Um, it was, for me, it's been really great working with Chad. I think that um, when, when I, we first started to brainstorm the book and he approached me with, you know, do you want to do something around this topic together? Um, I was, uh, you know, I was appreciative of, of the invitation to uh, to participate and to think through this topic well. Um, I think that certainly, certainly, particularly uh, white majority culture people need to be listening to the voices of people of color. But I also think that white people need to be talking about race from their vantage point because uh, they, you know, they they have a vantage point and a narrative and a story as well. And so I I actually like the idea of writing the book together. Um, so not even just the technical elements of how we did it, but I, I appreciated what it would mean for um, a black woman in a white man to write this book together on this topic. And I and I do know of other books that have been written in some different ways. I don't I don't know of any book off the top of my head that quite has that combination though. Um, and I thought that would be interesting. Um, in a lot of ways, I don't know, I, I'm curious to hear what Chad will say, but I think our process was um, go to your corner and <laughs> create what you create <laughs> and then bring it back and see if it's cogent and like keep doing that multiple times. And then one of the things that I think that, that Chad was able to do was to take this pantry of stuff that we created through our Zoom calls, but also uh, we did have some in-person, like large brainstorming sessions, like conceptual sessions, um, and to then like put it together like a jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> so, um, so th that's that's how I think about um, that experience, and then obviously trying to bring to bear our areas of expertise. And so, uh, prayer is incredibly central to I think all believers, but certainly to who I am and. Uh, processing questions and psychology, and so I got to I got to you know do do my thing <laughs> as it relates to that in the book as well, um, and I, and it's it's very multidisciplinary. So we were able, I think, to bring to bear all the things that we've been talking about for well over a decade in our independent work, but kind of uh, merge those things together. But I'm curious, Chad, how how would you how would you describe the writing process? <laughs> it was fantastic. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I think. Um, I was obviously thrilled when Christina said yes to work on this project together. I knew her great work. And um, so I, over the last 20 years, I've seen so many blind spots in my own life. <laughs> I've learned to just avoid trying doing anything solo as much as possible. Like that, 
doing things collaborative is a very, very high value for me. Um, and everything that we do, training, assessment, anything like that. So um, I knew from the beginning, I had no interest in writing a book on my own. So it was, it was thrilled when Christina said yes. Um, the, yeah, one thing I would say that I think was a really big moment for us just in terms of development of the book content was, you know, we both had, you know, all kinds of experience and things that we we're passionate about. And so we originally went down the path of you write a chapter, I'll write a chapter, you write a chapter, I'll write a chapter. So we kind of, you know, we had these, like what Christina was saying, we had kind of all these units of things that we wanted to express. And so uh, fortunately, I'm so thankful that we had the time with IVP and, you know, both just in time, even COVID, I think, gave us a little bit more space, you know, for it to process. So we weren't like facing some kind of like, you got to get us the manuscript in three months kind of deadline. So we actually had a year to let it sit. And, and so what we did over the process of that year is we took the two voice approach and merged it into a single voice. Mm -hmm. And so the majority of the, the book is written as a single voice with occasional moments where we speak from our personal experiences. And I, I just, I was happy with how that turned out. I feel like it, it, it was much more of a less of just like a little bit of me, a little bit of Christina, and it was more like us. And in that, that process of just taking our individual content and perspectives and, and hashing that out together was just, I thought it was really fun and helpful. Yeah, I love that. And thanks for sharing, because that's kind of what I was curious about, because I, I, I do know people have done books and they usually split stuff up and you can almost change, see the change in tone. And this book reads pretty seamless. And so that sounds exactly so I, I really I think it's really uh, <laughs> it's really remarkable. And it's uh, and I think it's a great model because it is um, obviously it's almost like you have dual editors and stuff at the, before you even give it to the editors. So you're able to really get a really excellent polished product. So um, so congratulations to both of you. And now let's let's get into the into the real meat today. But thanks for sharing that. And sure. um, again, I feel like every question I'm going to ask you could just be talked about for hours at, at endlessly. So this the first question and every one of them is probably massively unfair at some level. So I'll just, just say that, but I hope, but I'm, I'm guessing you, since you're the experts, so it won't, it'll be a little easier than if, than it would be if you were asking me these questions, but just on some definitions, because the, the whole conversation gets so polarized in, in the context of, of United States politics now, and let alone even within the church. So when we talk about words like, um, I'm just going to pick two of them, which I think are really, I think, I think are central. If there's others, please define some other words too. And, I, and by the way, they have a great glossary in the back of the book that does little short definitions of a lot of the, the key terminologies that runs through faithful anti-racism. But like, what does race, uh, racial justice mean? And then what is anti-racism? And then if you can frame that in some ways, since these are words that get used, um, not just among Christians, but among non-Christians and people of different political agendas and such. So in how is uh, your the Christian approach to this uh, the same and also how would it be different from what you might see in a, a big business setting or um, but between a political party or even just some ideologically driven movement that's that's would be essentially outside the church. I mean, again, I know that's a big question, but I'd love to uh, hear, hear how you would answer those questions. Yeah, you know what, I'll, I'll pick up the one around uh, faithful anti-racism. You didn't ask about faithful anti-racism. No, that's true too. But yeah, I'm gonna yeah. but I'm gonna I'm gonna answer both of those, Brian. That's good. And and then Chad, why don't you pick up the um the second uh, uh term around racial justice? And so I'll just say the story about why about how we named the book. <laughs> so um, the book is named Faithful Anti-Racism on Purpose. Um, and when we're thinking about faithful, I mean this gives a direct nod to your question about what what makes it uniquely Christian. 
Um, and, and so, and I'll start with kind of a theological framework of common grace that like this world belongs to God. So, so we have the ability to decipher across disciplines. Sometimes Christians will kind of tag Christian on like a shoe company or a school or a book or whatever, but um, all of God's creation, we are invited to explore, discern, understand, et cetera, and, um, and hopefully learn more about God through God's creation as well. Um, and so we didn't want to just take some concepts and say, like, let's, let's just attach Christian to it. We really wanted to interrogate them and also use the scriptures or sit with the scriptures to see the way in which scripture informs our, um, our social ethic and our understanding of, of racial stratification and how humans treat humans and how groups treat other groups of humans. Um, and so faithful has to do with a nod directly to the faith tradition. So full of faith, dependency on God. It's God's world. Uh, we're trying to appeal to and understand God's ethics, not our own. Um, when human beings try to rank each other, we get it woefully low as history bears <laughs> witness to this. And so we wanna be informed by our faith tradition and a mm -hmm. deep dependency on the, the, the Holy Spirit and scripture. Additionally, we think about faithful as the way that we do something. So kind of persistent, not perfect, <laughs> but persistent, steadfast, committed day by day. Racism, as we know it, and we'll talk more about that, is we, we make the case, and I don't think it's hard to make it, even though people may not like it, <laughs> that it is, it, it's kind of baked in. It's, it's, it's at, at the roots of this tree. Um, and so it's been there for a really, really long time. So in order for us to resist, we're going to have to resist faithfully, day by day. <laughs> intentionally, right? Um, so that's the disposition that we invite people into. When we talk about anti-racism, I know maybe around the last decade or so, that term has become like pop culture mainstream. People, you know, they hear that. Um, but uh, anti-racism, as we think about it, goes all the way back to the earliest uh, abolitionist work. So as long as we've had race-based chattel slavery, as long as we've had the idea of racial stratification and the ranking of humans uh, for the purpose of financial exploitation and gain, we have had people who have resisted resisted it, and largely they have resisted it because of their faith in Jesus. Now, with that being said, there were people who participated by the droves in human stratification who would have claimed the name of Christ as well. But the abolitionist movement is where we're really drawing from uh, this this contemporary expression of anti-racism. And that abolitionist movement was undergirded by uh, people of deep, deep faith. Um, and so racism, uh, race-based discrimination uh, for the purpose of subjugation of some and domination of others, usually for economic gain or also identity purposes, right, a sense of self, um, is something that anti-racists don't just say like, well, that's not who I am, I'm not racist, they actually resist it. Because it's baked in, kind of the more contemporary tagline is that you would have to resist it, that it wouldn't be good enough to just say, um, you know, I'm not a racist. Well, it's kind of baked into, you know, the air that we breathe, it's the water that we're drinking. So the disposition then is to actively resist it in our own hearts, but also in policies and practices, et cetera. So long answer, but that is how we decided to define the book. And that's how we think about it as it relates to our faith, as well as the historical tradition of anti-racism. 
No, I appreciate that. I think that's really helpful. And by the way, I don't have a bunch of questions about the biblical and theological foundations, but uh, we'll say to everybody listening, if you read Faithful Anti-Racism, there's <laughs> lots of that in the book. And and one of the things I really appreciated is you draw a lot off of the book of Acts, which is just, a, I mean, I think that's just a wonderful place that connects a lot of the stuff that obviously was happening in the early church and the trajectories. And so uh, anybody does pick up the book, they have a they give a lot of the backstory to racism in the United States and the laws and things, but you also get all the way back and you get real substantive biblical and theological foundations, which is going to be so helpful to get the word out in believing communities. Uh, so, so thank you, Christina. Thank, thank you so much, Brian. Like that, that part about making sure that what we say is rooted in scripture and that we're handling God's word thoughtfully and carefully. We love when people who are in that work are like, you did a good job. <laughs> so thank you. Well, you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So one, one thing I can speak to in terms of how is it different than secular efforts in this space, um, I think they really can have a complementary relationship. So when I first started working in this space about 25 years ago or so, I noticed, and even personally, the focus was on relationships, 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 you know, have a friend of another color or have a friend of another in another race or, you know, whatever it may be. And so um it was a big part of that is a minimization of race as systemic injustice and the racial yeah. hierarchy, you know, that Christine was talking about. And so um, oftentimes as we both work extensively with Christians on this space, I mean, even just to get Christians to a place, particularly white Christians, I should say, to a place where there's an acknowledgement of the racial hierarchy in the United States is oftentimes a really big challenge, right? So, so that's kind of, I think, kind of maybe the blind side of the church, um, generally speaking, particularly among white Christians. Um, I think on the side of the secular side of this work, I think there's also sometimes a blind side of the need for the relational too. I think it can be really heavily focused on the systemic and policies and those kind of things and, and kind of minimize the need to have those deep relationships to inform those kind of structural systemic policy changes that are essential. And then obviously the huge component that we try and stress over and over in the book is that this is way more complex and there are way many, way too many forces that push against this work for us to do it in any human strength, either individually or collectively. So I don't care how smart you are, or how great of a nonprofit you have, or how good your legislation is, or what kind of dynamic leader you are. At the end of the day, I don't think it's going to dent this monster of racial injustice that just continues to just wreak havoc on our country and the church. And so I think ultimately, if we want to kill that monster, then the only person that can do that is Christ. And so I think that's, you know, that's our conviction. And so that's where, um, you know, we'd love to collaborate, work with secular organizations in various ways. But I think one thing that I, that I think there's always a limitation in that, because if we're operating under two very different assumptions about what is necessary to produce true um, both integration, equity, and justice in the United States. Um, that's where we, I think, the roads diverge. Good, thank you. And is is racism, is it mostly just a white problem? How, how do you all talk about something like that? And I don't mean that to make that a loaded question, but just just curious, yeah. uh, how do you how do you how do you all talk about that? Yeah, you know what? Um, when you said that, it made me think of uh, the late uh, author uh, Toni Morrison, and mm, yeah. Um, you know, her, her kind of challenging 
and eloquent uh, pushback about her books and, you know, why don't you, you know, which typically, right, her books focused on the experiences and lives of Black people, particularly Black women. And she would get a lot of questions about, you know, why don't you write books for white people? Why aren't you, why don't your books don't have more white characters? And uh, she famously says in an interview uh, to the white male interviewer, you know, what are you, what are you going to do about racism? It's like, wh like, what are you going to do about it? So I think in the sense that, um, so, so racism is the problem for everybody. <laughs> and it's definitely a problem, certainly for our souls, because sin is a problem. It's a huge, huge problem. Um, and it does not remit with time. It cannot be wished away. Um, and so it's a problem for all of us in the sense that there's a unique, I think, call, there's a unique need for people who identify as white to, to wrestle with race and racism. I think that's true. I think that's true. I think that would be the group that when we know even from the research that's most likely um, to quote unquote not get it or to mm -hmm. embrace the full realities, burdens, and even history of racism. So in that sense, yes, it 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 is it is a problem for white people to embrace, to see, to recognize, and for white Christians to um to call on the spirit for wisdom and courage um, in which to dismantle racism. But racism impacts everyone, <laughs> everyone, all people. And there's a way in which not just racism, but white supremacy, I would say, not just not white people, but the idea, this notion, this principality, this philosophy of white supremacy has uh, misshaped the ways in which many groups see themselves. So the, the dynamics between Asian Americans and African Americans um, is, is informed and shaped by racism and notions of white supremacy and racial hierarchy, even though, even in that example that I just gave, there's not a white person in that scenario. But certainly those ideas about who has value um, and what it means to have value in the society um, are, are still very much impacting the ways in which non-white people groups interrelate even with each other and certainly also with people who identify as white. Okay, thank you. And so like just to, um, in, in this, I don't, just to follow up on that, because I mean, I don't, there's no, there's no challenge on what you just said, because I, I think that's, uh, it's just self-evidently true. But like if, because if we're talking about the United States, that's clearly the, the right answer or Europe, but if, is, is the issue ultimately, it could just be power, right? So like if I'm in China and, and we're writing a book about Chinese racism, that's not necessarily caused by white people in the United States. That's their own ideologies and they're, you know, they, they clamp down on certain groups within their own country. So it's it's kind of like the, whatever the dominant culture is potentially has the can do the most harm via racism. Is that a is that safe? And I'm not yeah. looking to try to do any kind of, no, you know, got, no, yeah. No, 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 I, I I no, I think that's, I think that's a great opportunity. So one I would say is that white supremacy, as we know it in the context of the West, certainly has been exported all over the, all over the world. Yeah, yeah. But, but to your larger point, um, that, you know, what comes first, you know, chicken or the egg. So, so greed and self-idolatry and thinking that we're God over our neighbor, that certainly comes first. And racism then becomes one of those means in which to exercise domination, maintain control, and maybe even to have a sense of our own 
very fragile identity. Um, so I, I, I think I, I think that to your point, Brian, or I think what I felt like you were where you were leaning into is that no, the ultimate issue is um, is really in kind of greed and um, domination of other human beings. Um, racism becomes a really savvy <laughs> um, way in which to do that, that has been uh, in place for hundreds of years and is um, very damaging, but also very profitable. Yeah, yeah. And then, so, you know, I'd I, I love to, there's all kinds of parts of the book I'd like to, 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 to talk about, but one of the chapters I really did appreciate was the one where you talk about magic thinking, um, which, which is just really interesting because you read through it and like, oh, geez. All the typical things that I would say that, um, you know, and again, I don't try to prove that I'm not a racist or whatever, but, you know, you can like, you just run through a whole list. Like I have a whole bunch of, you know, all the little cliches that most people say, and you have them all listed there. And then you also, <laughs> to, be, to be, you know, fair and balanced, you also talk about wokeism being a, a magic thinking kind of a thing too, or so in a sense, you can almost say it's certain kinds of virtue signaling that I'm not a racist is really magical thinking, but talk about some of the misconceptions that, um, that really aren't the misconceptions that we make about how maybe we're not racist, um, how that actually they're not as the things that we think aren't as helpful as perhaps on the surface you might think they would be. So just talk a little bit about magical thinking and, um, and some of the blind spots that that creates for us. One thing I think it's important we don't really talk about in the book very much is to think about why those things are chosen and valued by people. And I think from a big picture standpoint, I think it is helpful to recognize that those are oftentimes um, options that are less costly mm. than the more sacrificial systemic changes that require more personal investment, both um, individually and institutionally. So, but yeah, some of the ones, I don't know if there was one that maybe stuck out to you in the book, we could talk about that one, but um, I, you know, I guess the most interesting one for me, and, and again, you all didn't say this was bad, but you know, it's in, 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 and I think the key point was the systemic one, but I think the most common one is a lot of people, you know, navigate lots of, um, lots of different friendships with people from different cultures. I think especially like, you know, I live in Orlando. Um, uh, my wife is Puerto Rican and I live in like a, you know, Spanish speaking part of Orlando essentially. And I'm, you know, kind of for a long time in my neighborhood, I was like the only white guy that even lived in the neighborhood. And, and so it's like, I, you know, I could say, Hey, I got, you know, all kinds of friends. I, I shop, you know, in, in the, and so it's, you know, and, um, that, that does, but that doesn't prove that I don't have racist tendencies in my heart. So I think that was the most interesting one is that you could have potentially a, a large variety of friends in that, it's not that it's bad and you don't say that, but that isn't necessarily, you know, that isn't the panacea to fix the bigger issues. So I guess maybe you can just talk about that one because that might be, would be one that would surprise people. It's like, geez, I got all these friends and I mean, that's not good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We talk about a related concept in the book that um, I think is important that kind of fits in there called moral licensing. So um, obviously relationships are incredibly helpful. I wouldn't be doing this work if I didn't have you know, many, many people I didn't were very gracious with me and great friendships that opened my eyes. So it's a huge, huge, huge helpful thing. But unfortunately, what oftentimes happens is if, if people have cross-racial relationships, they may think, well, I can't be racist because of X, Y, Z. And that could be, you know, friendships, that could be marriage, that could be adopting cross-racially, that could be, I'm, you know, I attended a multiracial school when I was growing up, you know, fill in the blank. And so, 
Um, they actually studied this. Social scientists have studied this, that you know, when you do something that you feel like is ethical or good, then you can be more, he- you know, more likely to do things that aren't and, and kind of justify that to yourself. Um, and so um, we see that pretty frequently as well. So, yeah, I think, again, it's, you know, if, if you think about, again, the function of these things, like it is sadly, um, oftentimes I can speak personally, and then also we observe this, is that desire to have the cross-racial friendship, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, it's more about us and kind of proving I'm not a racist person because, see, I have a black friend. So it's kind of our, you know, way of saying like, hey, you know, I'm on the good guy's side, you know, kind of thing. But is it really, um, you know, we're really going in that to be learners and to sit underneath their leadership and to um, tackle the things that I might be doing that are contributing to the systems that disadvantage them on a regular basis. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's, I think that's good. So, um, so thank you. And uh, again, I'm looking at the clock here. So I want to make sure I get to some of the, the more, uh, some other questions, but that, that was, a, I think that was an enlightening chapter um, in the book on the, the magic thinking, the different, and the things that um, on the surface, there's nothing wrong with them, but they're not as good as, um, and predictor, and they're not as useful for solving the bigger systemic problem as, as, uh, as, as you might hope they would be at least. Uh, so just to get more, down into the weeds now. So when you read your book, the the thing that, it, you know, and I, I knew this before I read your book. I mean, it's like, if you want to know kind of, you know, profile for what a race it's just going to be, you could just look for, in some cases, it's the Christian church sometimes comes off as more homophobic and race, you know, and uh, anti-black, anti-immigration you get. And then, and you you know, your book runs through with all these statistics, which are can be depressing at some at, at some profound level. Um, but, you know, but you all work with local churches, you're both Christians. And so, you know, you still believe in the church and you believe in God's people. So when you, you know, you when you move into a to like, what, you know, what are some basic strategies? Like if there's pastors that are listening, and it's like, you know, what would what would just be some basic strategies that you have found in general? And again, there's no magic bullet here either. But what are just some, you know, things that uh, can help local churches to understand the <clears throat> the dynamics, especially of structural racism, and then make some substantive changes so that they can become allies and, and part of the actual solution to this problem in ways that glorify God ultimately? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, one of the so the doctrine of the Catholicity of the church. So this this sense that um, Christ is drawn to Christ's self, a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and we have a tongue, we have a diverse cloud of witnesses to God's grace. I think there's something in that. Obviously, that speaks to the fact that uh, Jesus is not a, a tribal deity or for one group of people. He's not, you know, the 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 god of uh, kind of nationalistic America, but um, this this is the god of the world, uh, and that's also I think a reminder to us to listen to, to learn from, to serve amongst, and be submissive to other believers who have um, experiences of God different than our own, and certainly experiences of society as well different than our own. So I think there is such rit- richness in the uh, story of the church um, that is broad and diverse both nationally in the states but just throughout the world and historically the other thing i would say too is that churches um you know so so christians 
<laughs> we, we make some really bold claims. We really, really do. Uh, we, we make claims about, you know, uh, you know, about who God is. We make claims about who we are to God. I mean, these are, these are big, big claims that people who are outside the faith are like, what are those people talking about? And I, I think that our credibility, well, scripture talks about it. Our credibility rests in our love for each other. That's like the biggest apologetic that we yeah. have been left with. And what has gotten in the way of that um, is, even from the earliest church when we talk about Acts, is that we have taken the so-called kind of ways of the world, domination um, and longing for power, prestige, et cetera. So, you know, kind of Pharaoh scarcity mentality, like these, these Hebrews are growing big in number and they're going to overtake us. So let's, let's work them even harder. We have sometimes inculcated that, that mentality. And mm -hmm. that has caused us not to give the due love that uh to each other and that has deeply deeply impacted our witness um as the people who say we are the people of god <laughs> so I, I would say that uh, people have to see this issue uh christians have to see this issue um at the heart of our apologetic as at the heart of our witness that we have been changed by the thrice holy god um, and then also uh, we need to be trustworthy to society so we cannot live in mythology. We have to actually read history. <laughs> and because we are the people of hope, right? We, you know, that's kind of our, our brand too, um, that, you know, uh, that we are the people where hope is clinging to us and that we're, we're prisoners of hope, then we can actually t t talk truthfully about just how jacked up things are, right? Um, we don't have to pretend um, that things are better than they are when they're not. And so, uh, Christians and I think local churches uh, need to understand history and and I would say start with the history of where they're located, but also the history of their particular theological tradition of their local church of its relationship. Uh, to different groups of people to immigrant stories to people of color, um, and so we we need to know that history because there's enough grace for us to tell the truth. That's good. You want to add anything, Chad, or I can ask another question or. I think Christine was hit on it. One thing I would say, just kind of simple, practical would be know yourself, it's good. know your organization and know society. So I think there's a breakdown on all three of those levels with a lot of the Christians we work with. They don't really have a good self-awareness where they are on these issues. They kind of feel like, oh, I'm not a racist person, but they don't really understand um, their own implicit bias. They don't understand how they're unintentionally perpetuating racial injustice in their own life in their organization. Um, we do a lot of climate research, um, Christian universities, Christian organizations, and consistently over and over and over and over again, I'm in board meetings or, you know, with leadership teams of organizations and their perception, you know, they come in thinking like, oh, we're doing pretty good in this space. And then we'll do research and, you know, we'll see there's this huge disconnect. So that's a big deal. And then oftentimes um, part of our national research has just consistently revealed that Christians, white Christians in particular, tend to have a much less accurate view of racial dynamics in our society and also a much lower motivation to address racial injustice. And so um, there's kind of a breakdown at all three of those levels. Yeah, that's so good. And uh and thank you for uh for for those for those for those answers. And yeah, and, and you know, and it's just fun that I mean you read the Bible and 
the Bible has no problem pointing out everything that Israel did wrong in their entire history as you go through the Old Testament, let alone if Paul and Peter fighting with each other. And you do use that as an illustration of speaking uh, to one another. And so you have these, these great biblical models, which we don't always think about when get defensive about talking about the United States when the United States is, you know, just a country that's been mm -hmm. good for many, many people, but that it's not a perfect country. And then, and it doesn't have to be perfect. And it can be more, it could be better in 50 years than it is today, which presumably we right. all hope it is. Uh, right. So, so ask, uh, um, talk a little bit, um, again, a good piece of the audience here would, would be pastors and probably smaller churches that aren't in suburban areas or even in urban areas. And so they're more out in the, in rural parts of the United States. And, you know, and, and again, I would never deny that there's not any diversity in rural areas, but in some rural areas, depending on what part of the country you live, it can really almost be just completely homogeneous in some sense. And I mean, there's always a few persons here, but how, how do you help people do this work when there's not a lot of, demographic diversity where they are and even like you know some of the solutions which is to build like a diverse staff do, i mean would you recommend if you're essentially in some rural isolate well not isolate but rural place where there's literally not a lot of people of color would you still recommend a church hire a person of color to come out and live and be one of the you know literally one of the few um persons of color in an area just wonder wonder what how you would think about that and how might uh, you help again pastors and really um, you know, I don't want to just pick on red states, but I mean, out in the conservative areas that tend to have problems with racism, I mean, explicit and obvious problems with racism. How do, how do they address that when a lot of times their problem is they don't actually know anybody that isn't <laughs> their own race, essentially? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's a really helpful question. Um, so one of the things I often share with people when I'm training, particularly in the in the context of the United States, it, it, it would be different if we were talking maybe about some other parts of the world. But in the United States, I would say that homogeneity is maintained. So the reason why, you know, our communities look the way they do, whether that's redlining in an urban context yeah. or um, sundown laws in a rural <laughs> context about who can come in and not come in. Can you can you explain the sundown law? Because I it's funny. I've I'm 53 and I I was just speaking with an African American pastor up in let's see uh, Illinois and he was talking about he was still afraid. I'm like I don't even know what that is. So I'm guessing other people don't know what that means either. So what's <laughs> yeah yeah. So sundown laws are a product of the post Reconstruction, so late 1800s and Jim Crow era of the United States, in which we have kind of. Um, you know, overt segregation. So like segregated water fountains and schools and all those things and churches, sadly to say. But we also had practices in which um, people of color, black people specifically, and also other groups were were told in, in, in some clear ways, sometimes implicitly, but explicitly like written, <laughs> written on a sign, like do not come into this space after sundown. Um, and that's not only in the deep south, there are parts of the Midwest that also have a similar similar story and similar, similar legacy as well. So when I make that point about homogeneity is maintained, I would, I would say to my brothers and sisters in Christ, my siblings in Christ who are in rural churches that are predominantly white, to give some thought to uh, why their community is homogenous today. What is the story? of why it continues to look the way that it looks today. And then what we have learned from uh, sociologists like Dr. Corey Edwards and others is that our goal isn't just diversity for diversity's sake. We don't wanna have kind of a, 
a phenotypical tokenism where we're like, come on out here. We feel good about ourselves because now we have a Latina who is our preacher or we have a, a black person who does, who sings our music or whatever it might be, uh, especially when we're putting them potentially in a community in which they will not have a sense of uh, ethnic affinity, ethnic community. Our goal is in diversity for diversity's sake, it's equity. Mm. The goal is equity and honoring kind of our intrinsic human dignity. And, and from there, and from there, we, we see amazing things happening. If we look at the book of Acts and we think about some of the oldest, the oldest kind of baptismal creed from Galatians 3.28, what it means uh, to be baptized as someone is saying there's neither, you know, Greek nor Jew or male, or female, um, slave or free. And like that, uh, uh, you know, slave or, or enslaver, right? Those are sociological categories that are in some ways reinformed by our spiritual designation, our spiritual identities. Um, so that that bold, um, divine expression of equity uh, used to be a part of what believers would hear as the as they experience the water <laughs> of baptism, right? Um, and I would say that the, those theological reminders of both baptism, the communion table, which also have sociological implications, I would be thinking about how to preach and teach and, and highlighting those dynamics, but also sharing with that rural community to have them to do their own kind of historical study about why our community, why our neighborhood, uh, why our town looks the way that it is. How has this homogeneity been maintained? Good, thank you. Um, I promised to wrap this conversation up. Do you all have a couple extra minutes? Do you want me to try to wrap this up in five minutes? Keep keep going. Okay. All right. Cool. Cool. Thank you. Thank you very much. Because um, this this is fascinating. Um, so, um, like now for persons of uh, of color who may be listening, I mean, I, I have uh, uh, I think I have a, a some of a diverse audience. Um, like, what's what's anti racism look like if you've actually in a group that's been a victim of racism, like what's what's the role that say a Latino or Latina church can play or an African-American congregation or uh, Haitian or Korean or, or whatever the group might be? What 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 role does a, 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 does a person of color, an ethnic congregation play in this whole conversation about anti-racism? I was like, Chad, go ahead and start. I, I, know, I know you're pausing because you're like, I am not going to start as the white guy. <laughs> I feel like I'm reading your mind. <laughs> um, so, so, so this is what I would say to that, that, um, so again, we're all breathing in the same air, drinking from the same fountains. And so, uh, the ways in which, um, the lies about what groups are, you know, closer to God than others. I know that sounds like really on the nose, but that, that is a part of some theological traditions. It's true. Yeah. Um, and the, that, that has had a, a, a grievous effect on people of color, even if they are in kind of a, an affinity space where it's only people of their um, racial or ethnic background. And so I would say there's still a need to interrogate the ways in which people have internalized racial inferiority, the ways in which they have um, uh, internalized, uh, you know, lies or belief systems of white supremacy, anti-blackness, anti-indigenous realities. Uh, I would say that um, many groups, uh, non-white groups, still have those struggles. And if as you, as you get into the book, you'll see the ways in which uh, Christian Christians of color also can function in a way very much so in their thinking and practice 
that denies the reality of racism, even for their own group or for mm -hmm. others, uh, other people of color. So I still think there's great work that can be done. I also, as when I think about the history and legacy of the historic Black church in America, uh, particularly uh, National Baptist, the AMBs, the Progressive Baptist Church, the Kojics, I, I think about the ways in which these are largely homogenous African-American churches, but have produced uh, prophetic witnesses uh, not only for the good of Black people, which would be perfectly fine because they're Black people, <laughs> but also for the good of society, for people who are poor and marginalized and unseen and immigrants, et cetera. And so um, I, I think that there is a, a beautiful and robust theological tradition there that all of us, whether we are African-American or not, but because we are believers, uh, we can learn from and be guided by. So um, that's that's how I would begin, I think, Brian, to, to answer that question. Thank you. And, and just to um, deepen that just a little bit out of out of curiosity. So given the fact that um, well, you just mentioned the, the the black church in the United States that that created a, a robust, uh, safe place uh, for um, for a community. So if racism would literally end, um, is the goal, let me ask this in two different ways, is the goal to essentially always have multi-ethnic churches, and then in that case, you'd be losing the discrete witness of these historic groups that were marginalized, and the other way would be, as a white person, if I want to be in a multi-ethnic church, instead of, you know, getting a bunch of white church planners and then inviting, you know, persons of color to come to the church, would it be better for white people basically to say, hey, I want to go join, you know, I'm, I'm Methodist, so let's say instead of being United Methodist, I become African Methodist Episcopal or something like that. Like, what, what are your thoughts on, you know, those two kind of ideas? Like, what's the, if, if we're thinking about a telos for this? Speak to that a little bit. Um, so I think one of the important things to first reflect on is the fact that there is a lot of dysfunction in terms of how exactly like you're pointing out. So many times when um, particularly white Christians think about diversity or unity or reconciliation or those kind of things, typically, even though it isn't conscious in their minds, what they're picturing is that persons of color coming into predominantly white spaces and assimilating or code switching or, or basically just doing things in a white way. So, and that may be tough even for some people to listen to even hear language like doing things in a white way. Like we don't do things in a white way, we just do things, you know? So, and I understand that with my background, I, that was definitely part of my journey is to try to, well, what does it mean to do something in a white way? But the, our white cultural practices or what's normative to us or preferred is in everything that we do. It's in how we worship, it's in how we disciple, it's in how long our services are, it's in how far we, when we talk to someone, how far are we apart, how, how you know, loud is our wording, you know, all these things. Um, how direct are we in our communication? Um, all those type of things, that's all cultural. And so, first of all, I think just acknowledging the fact that there is a white culture and that is very strong in these spaces is super important so that we don't assume neutrality that we're inviting people in. And so that is like um, Christina mentioned, Dr. Edwards, Dr. Corey Edwards has done a great job of pointing out the fact that the damage that results um, when we just invite people of color into predominant white spaces without an acknowledgement. She uses the term white invisibility or, um, you know, with some of her language. And, and that's just super important. 
But I think you're kind of raising an excellent point that I hope, you know, that all Christians would wrestle with. Well, what does a truly unified, loving, integrated, you know, 1 Corinthians 12 type church look like in the United States in light of 400 years of racial injustice? Um, I, I love that question. I, I hope that if we are informed by the true racial realities in our country and led by the Holy Spirit, like we see in the book of Acts, I think we could see some really powerful, amazing things. Um, but I think it would involve exactly what you pointed out there, which is more leadership sharing. I think oftentimes our dysfunction really is that that lack of power sharing and that lack of leadership sharing is at the core of our dysfunction and our inability to do that well. And so um, that that's really what I'm hoping and praying for, for the future of the church. Good. It's interesting. I've been, I, I tried to think um, about, um, well, the whole country is divided on everything. And I don't, what, when I th think of this question, I don't just think it, of, I know I wasn't particularly thinking about racism, but I think it would work as like one of the questions I like to ask my students <laughs> um, is, um, who does a person have to be or become as a precondition to hearing the gospel from you and your community of faith? And, and I think that actually, again, that's kind of esoteric sounding, but I mean, I think that gets at that whole business about forcing somebody to code shift or, I mean, from a racial perspective, or what was, what did you just say? White normal? What was the word white? Um, well, but white normativity is one that's used. Yeah. yeah. No, but you just used the word too, is about just not recognizing the, the whiteness of the piece. What was, what, what was that phrase? Transparency. Well, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, let me just ask one big, last big question. Um, and this is probably the most unfair question that I have. Cause it's like, I mean, if you solve this problem, you could probably be elected yourselves or whatever, but you know, <laughs> one of the things, yeah, exactly. No, well, see, we need people that don't want to be elected to be elected. That's probably would actually solve a lot of problems right there, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. You just got out of Dean. You don't want to be an elected official on top after being a dean for sure right so um but but you know given given the fact that one of the issues that's really is going to solve things is we have to solve some things at the policy level whether it's local state level or even federal stuff um and you know some one of the one of the you give out lots of recommendations but one of them is to you know vote for you know candidates that would support <laughs> racial justice and then that instantly just brings us into the whole can of worm of just partisan politics, which is so difficult to solve real problems, at least the way the parties are today. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering, given the fact that probably have Democrats, Republicans, um, and I'm just going to call, say, conservative and progressives, I don't I don't know what the fairest label is for any of these things is anymore, listening. Um, and you're thinking, well, geez, I don't want to vote for the other party just because or one way or the other. So like what have you seen anything well, like, what would be something positive that you see from about that from uh, about racism from, say, both a conservative or a progressive? And it's, we're just talking about generics, and this can even be classical period if it's not a and we're not looking for name modern figures necessarily. Like, what which what did the two sides get right? And obviously, what are the blind spots of both? If we were going to find the ideal person that could uh, really lead us really well on these issues. Mm, wow, that's a question, Brian. <laughs> Yeah, I want to. I want to find out who I should vote for, right? Because so it's, like, it's hard to vote. For, yeah, because it's 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 just it's such a well, difficult see, thing to know who to vote for anymore. Well, that's what Christian discernment was for. I was speaking somewhere recently, and people were talking about kind of their just you know obviously all the the angst and conniptions about like 
who can you possibly vote for? And typically when people are having that conversation out loud, I think they're probably referring to like the large national election, like the president. Yeah, yeah. They're not thinking about their local level. And, and I would and I would stress to people, if you're if you're getting kind of discombobulated, right, or anxious about the national election, then you need to get serious about your local elections. That's good. And to think about um, kind of, you know, school board. There are so many types of ways in which politics, not partisanship, but politics are at work in the way that we think about who has value, who has voice, who has resources. And so if I get why the national elections would make you a little nauseous, <laughs> but uh, get get really involved in what's happening on the local level because that's where God has placed you and you have a call to neighborliness. Um, and so be neighborly as it relates to politics on your local level. The other thing I would say is, it's, uh, and I don't, I don't wanna completely dodge your question, Brian, about what, what good things they have done. I will say this, I would say that, that that racism and white supremacy um, are such monsters, such principalities, um, that they have a way of co-opting all the, I mean, both political, we think about, you know, political parties and, and, and the other smaller parties as well, right? Um, and I think our goal then is to, I think it's where we can learn a, a few things from people who, uh, I think about, you know, my ancestors who risked their lives for the right to vote and certainly women who risked their lives uh, for the right to vote. And um, and they were voting for really bad candidates. <laughs> I want you to think about what it means to like, you know, uh, study for a really long, long time to take a test in order to get the right to vote that none of the other white people had to take. And then your choices are uh, racist and racist. I mean, like that's, th those are your options. Right. And what I would say to Christians is, the reason why we have spirit empowered discernment is not to help us to make obvious choices. Like clearly there's an angel and there's Satan. These are obvious choices, right? We have spiritual discernment because we need to be able to navigate difficult, complicated choices. Uh, we need discernment in order to do that. And I think what I, I tend to go back to is I start to think about the court's head of the vulnerable. So the sojourner, the widow, the fatherless, the poor, and the way in which from they are throughout the entire uh, canon, um, our eyes are drawn to them because God's eyes are drawn to that population, those populations over and over and over again. So I'm thinking about those types of those ethics, regardless of who the candidate is on a local or national level. I'm just trying to get closer and closer to uh, honoring and centering the quartet of the vulnerable. I tend to think as an, as an educator that when you when you center or you teach to a particular space, a, a place, it ends up, if you're teaching to the right place, it ends up impacting everybody in the space. And likewise, I think if you center the quartet of the vulnerable, that it, it becomes a blessing for everyone, even though some may feel like they're losing things. Well, <laughs> so I didn't answer your question directly, but hopefully I offered some, a bit of kind of ethics, uh, and perspective around that. Chad, I'm curious, which, what, how would you answer that question? <laughs> you did a fantastic job. Um, one thing I would point out at that point is that um, in the book, we talk about the danger of package deal ethics. And I think regardless of what political party you're in or you know groups you're following, there's always this danger to co take on their ethics rather than biblical ethics. And there, you know, in the book, we talk about, you know, some parties might focus on these four things, another party may focus on these four things. Well, meanwhile, there's a whole other set of things that are not talked about by either. And so, and maybe things that are even contrary to what the Bible teaches that both adopt and say, well, these are the things you, if you're going to be in our tribe and our club, you have to be, you know, really excited about these things. 
So I think we need to be discerning. We need to find that third way. We need to not be co-opted by any political party or group and, and really be seeking the Lord to, to Christina's point. And one thing I do want to touch just because it relates to power and politics and everything right now, because the season we're in, I think is really unique. And so what you see throughout American history is, especially around periods of time when white dominance is challenged, mm -hmm. um, you see there's a really oftentimes a strong backlash um, by white individuals, and that often takes the, the form of economics, politics, and religion. And, and typically, it's very difficult to even discern which is which, because those three things are so tightly intertwined and feeding on each other. And so I think we are in one of those seasons right now. Um, another season that was similar was like after the, the, uh, um, the, free of, the freeing of the slaves. Um, so that during that period, you know, white individuals in the United States, it was like, oh, we have immigrants coming in here, and we have freed slaves, and you know, Mexican-Americans, and, and it was just, you know, it was like, oh my goodness, what does this mean? Well, you see this, you know, this resurgence of violence, that's where we see thousands of lynchings, we see all of these, you know, black codes, we see all of these things, and political alliances formed between Christians and racist groups like the KKK, and, and all that happened, and, and part of that was the maintenance of white power in the United States, and I think that we are in a stage right now in the United States where something is similar is happening right now. So there's a lot of questions about changing demographics and what does this mean for me and my family and our neighborhood? And I think it's fear-driven that there's alliances that are being made in ways that are contrary to the scripture that are damaging to our society and they're damaging to the church and themselves. They don't realize it. And so we do touch on like Christian nationalism is a really big deal right now in the United States. And I think that one of the ways to think about Christian nationalism is it's a willingness to kind of fudge your true Christian convictions for the sake of political power. So where you can really tell that you're a Christian nationalist is when there is an issue that you that the Bible says this and your group says this and you go this way. Well, then you probably are struggling with Christian nationalism. And so I think that is uh, there's some great books that are out right now that, that delve more deeply into what that looks like. But I think as Christians in the United States, white Christians in particular, we always have this temptation to align ourselves with kind of these evil groups, with these anti-Christian agendas for the sake of political power. So if we're willing to just fudge a little um, and do some of these things, well, then now we can have the people we want in the White House or in the Senate or whatever it may be. And it, it is a, an incredibly dangerous, um, dishonoring, um, dysfunctional bargain that in the long run will only hurt ourselves, the church, and our country. That's a good word, and uh, that that and that's obviously uh, that that paints things well. And and I appreciated um, both of your answers on that very much because it's because uh, uh, I'm always interested on on policy because I because I, I didn't, that's why I didn't want to say Democrat Republican because there's still two parties and they're still two different. Like I always think, in a sense, the left needs the right, the right needs the left because you need to have different kind of policies and have real rigorous debate around uh, around things. And the thing I loved, I think, Christina. Because people do, you know, you can naturally gravitate to a political party. And I always think to myself, I just want more Christians and whatever, and all the political parties that are solid believers in Jesus. And if you just have that preferential treatment of the poor that comes out of scripture, you know, because there's different policy solutions to that, that could solve things and you need to have those conversations. So thank you. Thank you for, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know how we do with that last, that question. So that was actually fun. So I appreciate you all both taking the time to share that. And again, I want to be fair. I'm going to, I was going to, I'm going to skip one of my questions, but I'm curious about some books um, outside the Bible that have really shaped you deeply. And, and you can answer that question, whether the books are about 
racial justice or even just Christian books that have shaped you as a, you know, followers of Jesus. I'd be curious what your kind of two or three books that you both have, or either that, that each of you have found personally helpful to you. Mm. And that's yeah, the impossible yeah. question, obviously, too. That's the hardest question of all right there. So. <laughs> it's, it's okay. No worries, Brian. I've given myself permission to not name all the books. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. One of the first books that, that came to mind as you were talking, um, is a is is a, a book called Kindred by Octavia Butler, who is an Afri was you know an Af African American woman who's a science fiction writer as well. And so I, I really like sci-fi, and and I also really like history. Uh, and in that work, she um, kind of tells the story of of a black woman who goes back in time during the time of enslavement. So she's in a contemporary culture, but she goes back in time. And uh -huh. uh, that was the that was one of I think the required freshman year books for my undergraduate institution. So every freshman had to read, first year student now known as, had to read uh, that text together and discuss it. And so uh, what I, obviously I like the, the nod to history and the way we think about um, multi-generational consequences of racism and racial trauma as someone who's uh, has, is a psychologist now. Um, but I also like, uh, the the liberty of the writer for this black woman to write about sci-fi to dream to imagine um and to put that in conversation with her own cultural identity and, and heritage so that book comes to mind to me because i think it holds hands with many different things that i think are interesting including the idea of black liberation socially but also black liberation individually that this black woman can dream up this this world that she can work within uh, the system and genre of science fiction as well. And as someone who was 17 and, and uh, when I started college, that was a wonderful thing for me to read and to embrace and think about uh, the power and beauty of, of dreaming. Cool. Well, one of the classics that um, has really helped inform and challenged me is Bonhoeffer in a number of spaces, both his PhD work and his look at the, the Confessing Church um, sadly, I think it's incredibly relevant today. If we look at even the growth, growth of Nazism and the Third Reich and what he was up against in terms of his own version of German Christian nationalism um, that he faced at the time and the complicity of the church and the willingness to water down their faith convictions for the sake of aligning themselves for political power. Um, and um, so that's, that's been very informative. I've also really enjoyed the writing of Christopher Wright. Um, he's a British theologian. And um, he, uh, about as well as anyone, I feel like really um, makes just a fantastic case for um, using the Old Testament as a basis for ethics in a principled way. So we obviously can't adopt, you know, word for word, the teachings of the Mosaic Law, but um, to capture what is really going on there in the social system that God created for the people of Israel, and how can we replicate the principles of that in our society today. I love his writings on that. I think it's super helpful and really practical. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I love all this. I mean, Christopher Wright's one of my favorite writers. A lot of my students listen to this, so they've read his book. So that's, he's been very influential in my life and in, in my teaching. And yeah, he does have a great perspective. And so, yeah, thank you for uh, for sharing uh, those resources. And just the last question is, if, if, uh, if listeners want to reach out and uh, con connect with you, where are the best places to find you online uh, where if, if folks want to get some more information? 
Yeah. So, um, so Twitter, I'm out in the, I'm out there. I, I sometimes bravely go into Twitter and then sometimes I leave for a significant amount of time. Amen. Because <laughs> it is, a, it's, it's the, Twitter is the, is the uh, virtual wild, wild west, by the way. So, um, but yeah, that you could find me there. Um, and I also have a website, uh, www.christinaedmonton.com. So you could, you can look look that up as well. I, I'm a co-host of a podcast called Truth's Table, which has been around for a few years. I can share a little bit about how to yeah. connect our way for reconnect. So um, we're doing a really fun project right now um, called the Racial Justice and Unity Center that we've been working on for a couple of years. So you can learn all about that and connect with me at rjuc.org. Um, a major part of that project is we're developing assessment tools for individuals and organizations and then we're also, I'm really excited about this piece is we're forming a coaching network of really experienced, knowledgeable leaders around the country that work in this space. And so trying to make it as easy as possible for Christians who are saying, oh, that sounds good, but I need help. I need people to know what they're doing. Um, so we're thrilled to be able to connect them with these individuals all over the country. So um, love to talk to anyone through that. No, that's good. And I don't know if we just lost Christina. I think we she'd almost finished saying what she was going to say, and so I don't have to go back and see if I need to edit a little bit. But uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pretend like she's still here for a second. We'll see if she comes back on. But I want to thank you, Chad, and Christina for uh, this important work. Um, I also appreciate you patiently answering all the questions that I have and giving me, uh, given us so much time. I think this is a really valuable uh, uh conversation and i think again your book your all your book faithful anti-racism will show it for those on video moving past talk to systemic change uh, excellent resource highly recommend it and uh, again thank you uh, chad for and christina for being here today our pleasure thanks a bunch appreciate the work you're doing too i actually had a chance to listen to one of your podcasts recently on spiritual development and i found it both really encouraging and challenging so <laughs> It's great work, great, important work. So I was like, wow, that, yeah, I need to apply that and that and that. Yeah, it's really, really good stuff. So thanks for this, the work you're doing too. Well, thank, well, thank you. And uh, everyone that's listening all the way here to the end, we're grateful that you've joined us. And until next time, let us live by faith, be known by love and be voices of hope in the world. Amen. Listening to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. If you found this episode helpful, would you consider leaving a review wherever you found the podcast? And if you're interested in any of the resources mentioned, please check out the show notes. If I can be of any service to you, reach out to me at deepdivespirituality at gmail.com.